Nothing knows. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. You're here with uh, Brian Hanna, as always. We have a great guest, uh, Sean DeMartel is here. Um, he's an expert in real estate investing, and he's um, actually done some other things with uh, stock market investing and things like that. So he's a great person to talk to. Um, he's had a lot of experience in the different types of financial independence. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things today. Uh, but Sean has a, a great story and I think has a lot to offer. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Sean DeMartel so he can introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his background. Absolutely. Uh, thanks again for having me, Brian. I uh, really appreciate coming on the show. I love discussing this stuff. So this is all natural to me and I, I do it all day long. Great. Um, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and take it all the way back then um, and, and give everybody the, the full background so we can put everything into context here. So going all the way back to my childhood, I grew up in a, a a low middle class support uh, family, I guess you could say. Um, we didn't have a whole lot, uh, didn't get to go to the good schools, things like that. Um, when well, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and when I, when my parents had first moved to Louisville, Kentucky, we were pretty poor. Uh, we were like those families, if you go to church and they um, give out like baskets full of like household goods to to, to families. My family received those baskets there for a little okay. while. And so my parents were able to get up on their feet. So just to put things in a context of, we just didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and, and it was like that growing up. I even shared a bunk bed with my brother until uh, he went to college and we were both in high school at the time. And then he went to college, which is kind of weird, but we just didn't have an extra bedroom in the house. Right. So growing up, didn't have a lot of money. Uh, when in, going through college, um, you know, my parents couldn't afford to put me through college, so I had to do it on my own. So I did what most Americans do, and I was borrowing a lot of money in order to pay for college while also working full time as a waiter so I could pay rent and pay my bills, which definitely makes it a lot harder. Right. Um, while also trying to be social with your friends, which is just a tough life to live as far as time wise, time management wise. So anyways, I was in college. I had already switched my major uh, once or twice. I, I couldn't really, you know, I started with uh, electrical engineering. I was doing okay with grades and then I switched to chemistry and then I wasn't necessarily loving that. And I was really worried and stressing about coming out of college, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars in debt right. and then being strapped on that for a long time. That was really something that was weighing on me. So uh, my mother knew this because obviously I talked to her about it regularly and, and she knew how I was doing in college. Well, she had a girlfriend because my mother was working in TSA at the time and her girlfriend had a husband that was a air traffic controller in the tower. And so they had arranged this meeting because um, her husband wanted to show me this air traffic control job and be like, hey, Sean, like you should consider this if you're not sure what you want to do. It's a great job, great pay, great benefits. And there constantly is a shortage of air traffic controllers. They always need new bodies. But, you know, most people just don't even know how to go that route. Like, how do you become an air traffic controller? It's just this random job. Right. So. Uh, I, you know, I went up into the air traffic control tower one day, did this tour and I was talking to everybody in the tower and just about everybody in the tower. I think literally everybody was ex-military air traffic controllers. It was like ex-air force or ex-navy. And that's kind of the general path that you take to become an air traffic controller. Like I would say the majority of them go and they become air traffic controllers for one of the military branches. And then they get out and get hired by the FAA because the FAA does uh, hiring rounds each year where it's only for people with experience. So there's, if you haven't done it before, like in the military, then you're just not going to get hired. 
So um, I saw this and that really sparked my interest in potentially going to the military, visit a recruiter and realize that I can get into the military on the loan repayment program, which they pay off all your federal student loans for you over the course of four years. Um, and I would get the experience as an air traffic controller. So this to me was just a really smart move and smart path to get a high paying job and not have to worry about all that debt. So that's exactly what I did. I, I joined the Navy as an air traffic controller, spent five years here in San Diego as an air traffic controller. And uh, when I was uh, getting out of the Navy, I applied for the FAA and I got hired in my dream job, which is uh, here in Southern California in San Diego at uh, Southern California TRACON. And that stands for Terminal Radar Approach Control. So to this day, I am uh, the approach and departure controller for John Wayne Orange County Airport, Long Beach, Fullerton, Los Alamitos, and Torrance. So, you know, that I, got, I get this job out of the Navy. Um, it's a six-figure income, which it seemed like a million dollars to me at the time. Doesn't go that far in San Diego, by the way. I know it's hard, to, hard for some people that might be listening in the Midwest to believe. But I'm uh, making this income that I can finally, you know, start to live more of the American dream, um, pay off all my debt. And for a minute there, I thought, okay, I'm, I've made it. This is great. I, I think I'm good. Um, I wanted to start investing my money because I obviously was able to save some money on the side. I was really a, always been a good saver. And uh, I was saving a lot to, to invest. And so I started reading books like The Simple Path to Wealth, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Random Walk Down Wall Street, all of these finance books to try and uh, spark some ideas and figure out what to do with my money. So at first, I was investing heavily into the stock market via index funds. And really, the main index fund was my 401k. I was maxing that out. And so I thought that, you know, that was the smartest move. All right, I'll just max this bad boy out. Um, I'll keep working until I hit retirement age. I'm going to get a pension from air traffic control. And then I'm going to have a considerable nest egg from maxing out my 401k for all these years. You guys have access to the, the TSP as an air traffic controller? Or is it? Yes. Okay. Yep. So I was maxing out TSP. Um, and for a while I thought, okay, I'm doing everything that's smart. And for most people that is smart. I mean, that's definitely more than most Americans are doing because the average American has less than a hundred thousand dollars in the retirement account. So right. I knew I was on a good track, but what was bugging me is subscribing to this idea that I was going to keep contributing to my 401k and not access that money or live the life that I wanted to live until I was six in my 60s, 65 years old. Right. Or for a type of control, I could start, you know, pulling, withdrawing at 59 and a half. And that was really bugging me in particular because with air traffic control, especially at my facility, I would be work. I'm going to be working weekends there if I keep working there for another 10 to 15 years easy, um, working most holidays. And then, you know, with air traffic control, I have to bid for my vacation days the year prior. So... Right. In the fall, every year, like right now, I'm actually bidding on my vacation days for all of 2021. I have to set them all in stone, and that's it. And so that's obviously hard to plan. If you want to plan a vacation with anybody else, it's near impossible. Right. And then, you know, if you want to take any spot leave, they call it, uh, during the year, it's not going to happen. Like, you might get it approved the day of, but you can't plan like that. So that's also something that I really don't like about it. So this idea of doing that until I was 65 years old was just not, I, that was really bugging me. And I, and I don't like the idea of waiting that long to live the life I want to live. I love right. to travel internationally. I love to go backpacking. And it's really hard to do those things for me. So I started 
digging deeper into this investing stuff. And one day I met, you know, one of my good friends who's really into real estate. He's a real estate agent. He told me about this uh, podcast called Bigger Pockets, which I'm yep. sure a lot of people have heard of. Yep. And this was years ago, early on in Bigger Pockets days. And that was really the, the pivotal moment in my life where I discovered real estate and went down a deep rabbit hole of learning for years um, that has led to where I am today. So now I'll kind of speed that up real quick, just so because I'm sure we're going to get into some specifics here. Yeah, of course. I, I got into the real estate, started listening to podcasts like crazy. I mean, I would listen to every, po- I would find other podcasts other than bigger pockets yeah. that were, you know, real estate related. And then most podcasts that though, I like the guests will mention a book during it or at the end they'll say, Hey, what's your favorite re- investing book, a real estate book. And whatever that book was, I would go buy it and read it immediately. And I was on this tear. I, I was not a reader growing up in high school. I would only read if my teachers made me read a book for homework in college. I never really read when I was a kid. I didn't read Harry Potter. I wasn't a big reader. And now all of a sudden I'm flying through books and it's because I want to learn. I I was eager to learn. So now I have stacks of books. Uh, I've even had to give some of them away because I just don't have anywhere to put them. But I've, I've just continued reading and educating myself with, with free content, free online things. And, uh, this led me down this real estate path where, I quickly realized from there, not only is real estate superior, a superior investment vehicle, in my opinion, but multifamily apartment investing is even greater. Okay. And so now I own 32 apartment units. We're about to make an offer on 160 units and we're growing our portfolio right now. And now I'm an apartment investor. And so I know we're going to, there's a lot to unpack there, (laughs) but that's where I am today. And that's basically the general path that I, that I follow to get here. Uh, that's all incredible. And yeah, there are definitely a lot of things I want to talk about. Um, the first thing I, I'm kind of curious on, though, I, I like what you said about kind of being aware of a college debt. And we've mm-hmm. talked about that on our show before of, you know, it's is it is it really wise? And we've asked the question to other guests, you know, is it really wise in 2020 to get yourself into massive debt into college unless you're pursuing, you know, obviously if you're going to be a doctor or, you know, some type of field where you absolutely have to have that education, but absolutely. We're kind of on the fence about whether or not you need a degree. So I'm kind of curious, like, what was it in your head that, that caused you to kind of second guess that traditional college path? I'm just going to go to college, get in debt and then pay it off at some point later, because it's just going to be this massive amount. You know, what, what stuck in your head? What changed your, your mind on that? Well, as I was in college, I, you know, I quickly realized that you're not always going to get the job, the high, the high wage job from that degree right when you get out of college. I think a lot of us growing up in high school, I mean, I don't know if other people are like me, but I was literally Googling jobs like, okay, you know, what jobs make six figures? Okay. Okay. Oh, engineers. Okay. What's engineering jobs? What's the, what's the average wage or whatever. Right. Well, even if you get an engineering job, most of them, when you get out, they're not going to give you six figures. They're not, they might not even give you 80 K. You might still be making 40, 50 K like when you first get out of, of, of uh, college. And I, and I just realized that with most jobs that I was looking at, that was sort of the case and that I was going to be on the struggle bus making these, these payments and they were going to follow me for a long time. That idea was really what made me kind of realize that maybe I could do something else to, to kind of jumpstart my career and make good money. Um, and you know, I, I was really fearful of that debt because my parents, uh, 
my parents eventually got into like the Dave Ramsey stuff and, and they really taught me a lot about, about debt. But, um, you know, I just didn't want to start from this deep hole because I was already kind of in one economically growing the, from where I grew up. I didn't have like, you know, my parents like paying for college for me and then right. giving me money for rent and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have it. So I was already kind of starting from a little bit negative okay. and I just didn't want to dig that deeper hole. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, and that's kind of why I wanted to touch on it. You know, it's, I don't think people realize how, I don't think they realize the opportunity cost of that debt. You know, we've talked about Absolutely. that Talk about opportunity costs and, and just the cost of that debt. I think it's 70 or 80%. There's been surveys done continuously about this, but around 70 or 80% of non-homeowners uh, report that student loan debt is the primary reason why they can't save up for the down payment for a home. So wow. that it, it's either because they can't save up for the down payment or the, of right. the home or, it, or they're fearful of buying a home with all of that debt. There's a whole bunch of reasons, but that's the, one of the primary reasons people are not buying homes younger in their younger years in life. There's a lot of other things contributing to that too. But, but nowadays, um, you know, people aren't starting families and buying homes until much later in life than they were before. And that's one of the main reasons. Yeah, you know, I've, I've seen that before and that, that's pretty scary, you know, and that, I don't think I, I like to really harp on that because I don't think people realize, you know, it, it delays everything so much and how fast time goes by. You know, you don't realize before you know it, you know, you're married with kids and it's like, oh, I still have this student loan debt that I can never get rid of, you know. And it, yeah. And the way, you know, part of the other reason we want to do this show is, you know, we believe that the economy is changing so fast that a lot of these degrees that people are getting, it's almost like you're getting a degree for a field that may not even exist you yeah. know, in, in five or 10 years. Um, and what's really scary, and this is off topic a little bit, but I like to touch on it, the amount of automation that's coming to all these different traditionally secure fields, you know, I mean, medicine and, you know, legal fields and stuff is, is it's amazing. You know, you have AIs that are reading legal documents now, you know, and yeah, I think people I really, they should really second guess they really need to be aware of where their career is going to be in 20 years because it, it may not exist. I um, think all people need to really, because... You know, if you're dependent on somebody else to pay you for your time, right? Then, it's, then your life and and wealth is are not in your hands, right? So, at some point, you need to take a little bit more control, and you, you always kind of have to be thinking along those lines, no matter what your job is. No, I totally agree, and I think what people forget a lot of times is that you're paid for the value you bring to the company, not necessarily what you think you're entitled to, right? You know? Yeah. And, you know, you see a lot of these companies out there, they, you know, these people are demanding, as you know, bring me sound bad, but they're demanding $15 an hour. It's like, well, wait a minute. Well, do you really bring that much value to that company? You're, mm -hmm. you're basically pricing yourself out of your own job, you know, in a sense, but yeah. Yeah. But I could get on that soapbox all day long, but I, I won't. <laughs> oh, same. <laughs> but, uh, but I also wanted to touch on, you know, for people that aren't familiar you know, with the TSP and, you know, 401ks, and I know you mentioned mm -hmm. um, the simple path to wealth. Do you think, I know you kind of went a different route and we'll, I definitely want to get to that because I'm definitely interested, but do you think that there's a place and do you think it's feasible for someone that has a moderate income? Could they pursue both paths? Could they invest in, you know, in the stock market, Could they invest in index funds while still pursuing, you know, a real estate um, side hustle per se, you know, is that feasible for you or? Absolutely. It absolutely is feasible. Um, and the reason why I stopped doing both 
is because I wanted to expedite my process to financial independence, Um, financial independence, retire early, right? The fire movement. I wanted to expedite my path to that. And my, I, so I went all in, I put all my chips into real estate for that reason. Um, so, but it's absolutely possible. And a lot of people do it. A lot of people continue contributing to their 401k. Um, and then on the side, well, you know, get some single family homes or whatever the case and slowly build up a portfolio. And I think that that's brilliant because especially if you're already maxing out your 401k, right? You can only put so much in your 401k before they won't let you put in more. And if you've got more money to invest, then I think that that's brilliant to do that on the side and do both. So I would never tell people that it's not smart or that it's not possible to do both. How would, how would someone make that? How would you help someone make that decision? You know, if someone is kind of on the fence, let's say they're new to this and they kind of, like you said, you know, they jumped into the world of podcasts and books and everything. And they're, they're overwhelmed with the amount of information out there. Mm-hmm. You know, how, what would you say to someone that's kind of considering one path, or the other, like, how would they, how would you help them make that decision? To help you make that decision, you need to just spend at least a year, spend a long time really researching and studying what you want to do. If you're considering going into real estate, it shouldn't even be something that you're considering if you're going to make that move. You need to be 100% because once you withdraw or stop paying into your retirement account, that's a huge decision, right? Because you, if you're going to go the path of the retirement account and the 401k, you got to start saving early and don't stop and and put as much as you can into that thing. If that's going to be the path you're going to choose. And you can't be wishy-washy. I think that if you're going to go with real estate, you can absolutely achieve financial freedom. You can create an enormous amount of wealth. More millionaires have been minted from real estate than anything else by far. So I think that it's a clear path, but you got to know what you're doing. You've got to really spend the time, get a mentor or, or study extensively if you're going to make that jump. I think it's possible, but don't just... Um, you know, say, Hey, I got a buddy, you know, he bought a house and he's renting it out and he's doing pretty good. So I think that I'll just go that path and kind of follow his model. I think you've got to know what you're doing and do it right for it to work. Um, but what, what I love about real estate is it is also very forgiving, uh, because even if you aren't the greatest real estate investor in the world, uh, really you, the longer you hold real estate, the more it's going to be worth just over time, it will be worth more. Um, but I think if somebody's on the fence, and they're thinking about potentially doing one or the other, I would say continue to educate yourself and eventually make that decision on what, what you love more, whatever the benefits or pros and cons of each are that is attracting you, you know, write those down, make a decision and go with one of them strongly. But I I really want to emphasize that they need to absolutely be sure what they're going to do. Now, would you say just for comparison, would you say that maybe someone who, wants to, let's say, let's say they prefer the comfort of a job. You know, they prefer Mm -hmm. going to work every day. They prefer not running their own business. You know, would that be something that someone would say, okay, I prefer having a job. I prefer having an employer. So if I prefer that, then I may lean more towards 401k index fund investing. Or do you think that there's still a place for someone who wants to continue to work full-time, but maybe pursue, you know, real estate is that do you have to go, I guess my question is if you're going the real estate route, do you have to go all in or could you still maintain a full-time job, but still use your real estate investing as a kind of part-time gig just to get into that financial dependence later on down the road? And I know it's kind of yeah. a loaded question, but <laughs> no, absolutely. And so basically what you're getting at is it's somebody that doesn't want to, they, they love, they actually maybe even love their job. Let's say somebody loves their job and that's one of the reasons why they don't want to quit. Um, and, and they like, you know, going, going in and clocking in 40 hours a week. 
Um, they like, you know, maxing out their 401k, but they've got this idea. Okay. I want to build this portfolio on the side. I, I think that that's a smart idea, especially for somebody that doesn't want to dedicate too much time to the real estate part. Um, there's ways to put your real estate on autopilot. I mean, hire good property managers, learn how to get all of this stuff automated for the most part to where you're just managing the manager. Um, and then you can slowly build up a portfolio on the side. It, you know, it, it also depends because if you're going to, if you're trying to scale to this really large portfolio, it's going to take a lot of your time to where working a 40 hour a week job is going to get harder and harder. But um, there's, I think that there's plenty of Americans that do exactly that. They, and, and I think it's very smart to, you continue your work in your 40 hour a week job. And on the side, you're buying, you know, a couple single family homes here, or there or some small multifamily, which is then supplementing your income and helping grow your wealth. Um, I actually think that that's a smart idea for a lot of people, because a lot of people too, maybe don't even have the time to dedicate or maybe they just don't like real estate. Maybe they don't like learning about, you know, tenants and uh, how to underwrite properties. And that's just not their thing. They don't like, you know, they're not, they don't have an analytical mind and they don't want to research a neighborhood or run the numbers. And if that's the case, that's totally fine. Um, because it's not for everybody. Now, I don't think everybody can, you know, put all of their money into real estate, like I've done, liquidate their 401k and, uh, you know, grow, grow a huge portfolio. Not everyone in America can do that. And I get that. Are there, services and it, would this be a viable option for someone you know I've, I've heard of a company called Funderize and it's not mm -hmm. endorsement it's just a you know we're just talking about them but you know the, there's Funderize um, I know there are a few other ones I think um, I'm drawing a blank on them but I think you know what I'm talking about these companies that essentially you in a sense it's almost like a 401k where you just contribute a certain a fixed amount of money you know every month or every couple weeks or whatever it is and they do the investing for you and they promise a certain amount of return on that money. Have you, do you have experience with that? Is that something you would recommend people do you, stay away are, from? Are you talking like a REIT? I guess it would be. Real, yeah. yeah. Real estate investment trust. Yeah. So um, there is real estate investment trusts out there, REITs. And, you know, for the thing about REITs is it, it might be a good way to diversify, but it's very similar to buying into the stock market a little bit in the sense that you're buying shares of this company that's then going to go use that money to buy real estate. And they're going to give you, you know, X amount of turns on average. And, you know, those are going to average maybe around what the stock market is going to average over time. Right. Okay. So it might be a good way to diversify your portfolio, but I think if you want to really see the benefit, the main benefits and the, the, the huge upside that real estate can provide, I think that you need to go on your own personally because real estate can routinely give you double digit returns. Um, even if you're just flipping houses, if you're flipping houses and you're not getting a, a double digit return, then you're not very good at it. Um, so real estate can continuously give you double digit returns if you do it right. And I think that, you know, if you're going to go that route, I mean, there's even ways to, uh, to autopilot it in a little bit different way. There's, you know, you could buy a turnkey property where they literally will fix up the house for you, get it rent ready. You pay them, they'll put it, they'll even put a tenant in there and you don't have to do anything other than buy the property. I mean, there are ways to do that as well, but as far as the, the REITs and the, the, you know, the real estate investment trusts, I've never been a big fan of those because their returns that they tend to offer aren't, aren't that, you know, it's, drastically better than the real, uh, than the uh, stock market. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I kind of like to just cover all the basics because, you know, we have a lot of different listeners and I like to just ask as many questions as I can and, you know, kind of cover all the basics, yeah. but that's Let's interesting. So um, with 
was I going to say? Now, I know you talked about turnkey real estate. Mm-hmm. I've kind of researched that a little bit. And my impression of turnkey is that it's easier, but you do tend to lose a lot of the potential return by yep. doing turnkey. And my impression, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but with a turnkey, you're essentially allowing someone else to buy a potentially distressed property, do the repairs, and they're most likely making their money on the repairs themselves. It's the difference between buying that distressed property and selling it as a rehab property. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned bigger pockets. And one of the things that I've, that I've noticed with them is they are big fans of buying distressed properties. You do the repairs yeah. and then you do a refinance, refinance that property and then uh, rent it out or potentially sell it. But I think they tend to be bigger fans of, um, you know, renting the property out as opposed to just flipping it. So can you kind of talk about that a little bit, you know, as far as, you know, someone who has heard the term turnkey, Mm -hmm. um, am am I correct in my assumption or would there be, or what are the pros and cons of turnkey versus finding that distressed property yourself and doing the, the, um, the work on your own? Yeah, just like you alluded to, if you're going to do that turnkey route because you don't want to do all the work, you're going to pay a premium for it. You're not going to get as much of the upside. And I agree. That's why I've never done one of those. I never will. Um, the, the way that you make a lot of money in real estate is exactly like you just outlined. If we were going to just break it down super, super simple, it's, it's, it's not that complicated. It's really you go and find a property that needs some work and needs to be fixed up. You fix it up. You rent it out and hold it. You'll cash flow on that property, which can then support your lifestyle, or you could sell it and you can make a bunch of money. Now, if you pay somebody to go do all that work, excuse me, they're going to charge you a premium for it. I mean, and that's how they make their money. So by not, by not wanting to do any of the work or, you know, any of the take on any of the risk, because really that's what investing is, right? It's all, it's all risk adjusted returns. So if you take out all the risk and want somebody to do all of it for you, then you're going to pay for that. And if you want to realize all of the huge gains, you've got to go buy something that needs value to add. We we call it adding value. You've got to add value to some real estate. And then that's where you're going to make a bunch of money. And so that's, you know, with, with my company and our strategy, we do the same thing, except we buy a multifamily. That's like another word for apartments. Right. We buy apartments that need value added to them and we add value and then we use the, live off of the cash flow or go and sell it further down the line. So same concept. And that's really with real estate across the board. Even if you're buying a 200 unit high rise apartment complex, they do the same thing. If it's you know been seven, eight years since they've renovated the interiors, they go and they renovate the interiors. They can charge more for rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's how you make your money. So the turnkey stuff. You know, I mentioned it just for somebody that, you know, as a potential option if somebody really doesn't want to do any of the work, but I don't really recommend it. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I kind of what I wanted to to break down a little bit because I'm kind of of the same opinion, but I wanted to get your opinion because you're definitely more of an expert than I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm just, you know, I'm. It's funny. A lot of what you said is is a lot of what I've done. You know, I, mm-hmm. I kind of jumped in both feet into the podcast world and, you know, audiobooks and everything. And it's amazing. You just get so overwhelmed with, with information and, you know, just like you in bigger pockets, I think they have what, six or eight shows, you know, every week now yeah. listen to it's, it's almost more than you can keep up with, but it, it's amazing that there's so much information out there. There's so much knowledge that it almost makes it, it's overwhelming because it's, it's hard to determine what path to go down. Yeah. You know? And that, that, that also makes me want to hit on something when it comes to, you know, when we were talking about college earlier, 
you can go and pay tens of thousands of dollars, forty, fifty thousand dollars plus for these college educations. But what's amazing is that the internet is full. We live in a yeah. time where you can learn how to do just about anything yeah. for free online. There's just a wealth of information out there. We can learn from experts for free. Even a lot of colleges offer things for free now. Yeah. You can really learn some kind of a skill, marketable skill, completely free that you can then go turn into a whole bunch of money. Same thing with real estate. Most of what I've learned in real estate was one completely free other than buying some books. Granted, I do have a paid mentor now, but but uh, you know, I recommend to people that let, let's say that they're out there considering real estate. All of this, most of this stuff you can learn for free. And I say most because, you know, there might be like certain tips and tricks that like the best of the best are doing and they just haven't written a book about it yet. But you can make a lot of money from free information online. It's insane. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, I always have said that if you have a smartphone in the palm of your hand, you have nothing to complain about because you, you you literally have access to the world's information. I agree. And I don't think people, I think people take that for granted. You know, you, that's 20, 30 years ago, that would have been unthinkable, you know, to have Mm -hmm. access to every movie, every book, every song. And like you say, college courses, I mean, MIT, I think they do it through um, iTunes or the Apple university or whatever they call it now, but like MIT puts their courses online, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get a degree, but you can literally take MIT courses for free in your car, driving to work if you wanted to, you know, it's really incredible. Uh, but that being said, you know, you took a big step. I, I want to get into this too. You said you liquidated your 401k, your yep. retirement account. Mm-hmm. So let's, I really want to, uh, let's dig into that. You know, you, you made that decision. Talk us through your decision to, um, to liquidate your 401k and what were the steps that you took to turn that cash into real estate? And I really want to hear how you got to where you're at now. That's, that's really interesting. Okay. So Let's get into, yeah, let me, let me start with why I wanted to liquidate the 401k then. So like I said earlier in the show, I had been for years maxing out my TSP. It was like, I don't know, $1,400 a month or something like that to max out my 401k. And I was doing that, building up, uh, building that up and growing that slowly over time. And like I said, what was bugging me is that I didn't want to wait until I was 60 years old to access that money, 15 and a half. I didn't want to wait till that long to access that and live the life of my dreams. And when I started learning about real estate is that you can live off of the cash flow. I kept hearing all of these stories of people that were saying that, you know, they started three, four, five years ago, whatever the case, they built up a portfolio and they were living exclusively off the cash flow. So some of the things, I'll just list off some things that I don't like about 401ks and retirement accounts. You can't access it until retirement age. You can't touch it without penalty or paying interest or whatever. It doesn't provide you with cash flow during that time. Right. So in order for you to access that money, you have to sell shares later in life once you're retired. So then once you're selling shares, you know, for the people out there, I don't know if you guys have talked on your show about how to calculate, you know, how much you need to save for your retirement account. But for the people, just to review really quickly, if you want to know how much you need to retire, there's what's called the 4% rule. There's this thing called the Trinity study conducted at Trinity University. That's the nickname of the study. And they, without digressing too much into it, they basically have calculated that if you lived off of 4% of your nest egg in retirement, that you have like a 95% chance of not running out of money before you die. Right. But that's the whole concept of the retirement account is save up as much as you can. And hopefully you won't die before you run out of money. Right. That idea is insane to me. And that I can't touch it until I, until I retire. I have to work until I'm 60 something. I didn't want to work until I was 60 something. Okay. Um, 
I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. So with that being said, I realized that I can build up a portfolio of cash flow for real estate. So let's say you want to live off of a hundred thousand. I'm going to go back to this whole 401k thing. Let's say you want to live off of a hundred thousand dollars a year um, at retirement without running out of money. Well, in order to do the math backwards with this 4% rule, that means you need to multiply by 25. So if you want to live off of $100,000 a year, that means you need $2.5 million in your retirement account at, re at retirement age. By the way, that's if you retire at 65. And since I was going to be retiring at 60, I'd probably need even more. So now if you're listening at home, go Google a retirement calculator and go see how much you need to save based off of how old you are right now and how much you already have in your retirement account in order to get $2.5 million. It's not easy. And depending on how old you are, it probably ain't going to happen. Um, so when I saw that, you know, uh, that that's really what got me, you know, thinking, okay, I'm not buying into this traditional dogma of waiting until I'm 60 something. I'm going to go this real estate route for a lot of reasons. And I'm going to tell you why. Number one is cash flow. I can go and buy a real estate deal right now with my money. And that money is immediately, that property is immediately going to be putting cash in my pocket every single month. Tax advantage, by the way. Right. Okay. And then as the years go on and rent increases, that's only going to be more money. So if I buy a 10 unit property today, that's a multifamily property for 300 something thousand dollars in Cincinnati, it gives me two grand a month. Uh, it's going to give me two grand a month every month, you know, after expenses are paid. And then as the years go on, that'll turn into $3,000 a month, $4,000 a month, whatever. Okay. Number two is that I can use leverage to buy real estate. So if you're going to go buy a uh, list for, for easy math, cause I suck at math, <laughs> which is funny. Cause I was going to try to be a, an engineer. Let's just say you're going to buy a hundred thousand dollar property somewhere in like, I don't know, Cleveland, you might, right. or Detroit, you might still be able to get a hundred thousand dollar property. And you were going to use an FHA loan with like 5% down. That's what five grand. Okay. You can borrow the money to go buy that house. Okay. And if, like I said, if you're using FHA, that's what five grand, there's even ways to put no money down. But let's just say that now that that property over a couple of years appreciates 10%. Okay. You just got a 10% return on a hundred grand, not five grand. So if you're going to calculate your return on investment, calculate it based off of that five grand. So let's say you made 10 grand off of that five grand. That's way better than if you were to put that money into the stock market. So the stock market's not going to let you borrow money. If you want to go to the bank and say, hey, I want $100,000 so I can go invest in this um, index fund, it's not going to happen. Whatever you're investing in the stock market in your 401k is only going to produce returns based off of your cash you put in there. I got you. Real estate is different, right? So that's another reason why I, I really love real estate. So I realized this and I made the decision that I'm going to, I'm not going to continue contributing to my 401k. I'm not going to do this until I'm 60 years old. I'm going to retire early. I'm going to quit my air traffic control job early, go full-time with real estate and live off of the passive income from my real estate. So that was the decision that made me want to pull out my 401k, which I did. I liquidated it. There's not a dime left inside of it. And then I went and I bought apartments. Can you talk about that briefly? Cause I think that's important. When you say you liquidated your 401k, how would someone do that without incurring a lot of penalties and fees? Is there a way to transfer the money? Because I think a lot of people here liquidate and they they would just withdraw the money and not realize that there's tax consequences and you know other fees that are associated yep. with that. So I paid all the fees the first time. Oh, wow. So the first time I, I withdrew, I did pay the fees. So there's okay. like a, whatever it is, like a, with TSP, I think it's like a 10% just penalty. That's just money gone. Right. And then you tax that money when you pull it out because that money wasn't taxed before they put it in there, depending on, you know, if you're Roth or traditional. And so then they tax at the regular tax rate. So I did have a tax bill. 
Okay. Uh, but even still, the returns I'm going to make on that money are much, much better. So anyways, uh, yeah, I, I withdrew it all at first. And then there were, but the thing is, is when you withdraw the money, you've got to, you know, you, you can either incur all those penalties, but you can also only withdraw, at least with TSP. I don't know if there's something different out there. You can only withdraw what you put into it, what you contributed. Okay. You can't withdraw, like if there's any employer match money, you can't withdraw the growth. You can't withdraw that stuff until retirement. However, with the CARES Act, that changed. They were allowing you to withdraw, I don't know, from everything, but at least from TSP, I could withdraw my money without penalty. I still have to pay the taxes on it, but I can even withdraw the entire balance, the remaining. So I just withdrew with the CARES Act this year, the remaining like $40,000 it was in there. And uh, I'm going to pay taxes on it come tax season next year. But that money I'm going to go buy, uh, use to purchase my shares in the 160-unit apartment complex okay. that we're going to be making on. Uh, interesting. All right. So what was the first, what was your first property that you bought? What was, what was the first one? So the first one was a 32 unit, um, apartment complex in Greenwood, Indiana. Okay. And that property, the, so at first I was looking at single family properties. Then I realized that multifamily had the uh, potential to cash flow and produce way greater returns for a lot of reasons. There's just economy of scales with, with multifamily, right? If you've got a single family and the tenant moves out, that's all of your income right there. Now you're on the hook for the entire mortgage. Whereas on my property, I could have 15 people move out and the property's still paying all of its bills. So um, with that being said, I started looking at multifamily properties. And then I you know, was talking to two buddies at work who were also really into real estate investing. And we started this conversation of partnering together, forming a company and investing in apartment complexes where we're going to get a better return on our money. And so that was like this catalyst that started this partnership with two guys at my work. And then us three went and purchased a 32 unit in Greenwood, Indiana. And just like we had talked about earlier, this was a value add deal. This was a property that the, it was a mom and pop owner, pop died, mom was selling off the, uh, their assets and it was a poorly mismanaged property. They hadn't upgraded it in years, uh, never really upgraded it. And so we've gone in and renovated the units, fixed up the outside. We're getting a lot more rent now at the property's cash flowing. Um, so yeah, that's that, that first deal that we got was that 32 unit deal. And that was the best decision I ever made in my life. And how did you find that in Indiana? So the, the, the apartment game, when you're talking about multifamily and particularly these larger multifamilies, the way you find these properties is vastly different than you're going to find, you know, a single family property. It's not like you go hop on Redfin and go find apartment complexes. They do have an app called LoopNet where they put just trash, crappy apartment (laughs) complexes that aren't good deals. But the game is totally different. You actually got to either get these directly from the seller or from brokers. So there's uh, commercial real estate brokers And you basically have to get on their email list or or start a relationship with these guys. And when properties go for sale, they email you and say, hey, here's the offering memorandum. Here are the financials for the property. Uh, Let me know if you're interested and want to make an offer. And so you'll just get these emails of all these properties that are on the market. And that's how you learn about uh, an apartment complex that's for sale. So that's how we found this deal, the 32-unit property um, in Indianapolis or in Greenwood. That's great. And how would, how would you calculate for someone who's, who's thinking about that? How do you calculate your return on investment? You know, how do you say this property costs X amount of dollars and it's going to generate, you know, this amount of cash for me? Like, well, what are the numbers you guys look at? So when you're looking, when you're running the numbers on apartment complex, it's a lot more complicated than doing this for a single family home. 
uh, because there's a lot more expenses uh, and income line items to consider. So we have this big spreadsheet. I mean, you can go buy spreadsheets from, you know, operators for a couple hundred dollars to underwrite commercial properties. But um, we've got this huge spreadsheet with all these different tabs and you've, you know, you've got to calculate all the different income streams. So you'll get what's called the T12. I'll try to break it down very simply. So when you're looking at a, a apartment complex like that, you've got to underwrite or run the numbers based off of their trailing 12 months of income and expenses. So they're basically going to give you their profit and loss statement, P&O. And you're going to have to come through that and pull out all their income and expenses, put it into your own calculations. And you know, you're calculating all the income sources from rent, pet rent, late fees, um, whether or not you know they might have storage units or other things that people pay premium for, premium parking, whatever. Then you got to take out all your expenses and there's everything from admin fees, property management fees. If you have a larger property, you're going to have payroll because you'll have maintenance people on payroll. You'll have um, leasing agents on payroll. Um, you'll have to take out obviously all the, all the expenses when it comes to, you know, trash removal. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that you got to consider. And then you'll get what's called the net operating income. And that's just your net income, not including debt. And then you'll take that number and you'll be in close communications with the bank and you'll figure out what kind of debt they're going to be offering you. And then you'll subtract that debt from the net operating income number. And that's your cash flow. Okay. And so you'll, but you know, that's your cash flow day one of operating the property. So you'll make your offer based off of the net operating income. And you're going to then project, and this is, takes a lot of research, you know, some experience and, and know how to do it. But you're then going to be projecting, okay, how much you're going to spend on renovations. You'll say, okay, I'm going to spend, let's say, $8,000 per unit to put in new flooring, new cabinets, countertops, appliances, what have you. And based off of the rent that properties like this fixed up are getting in the area, I'm going to get you know a $150 increase in rent. And then you'll plug that into your numbers and, and be able to like calculate, okay, six months from now, a year from now, this is how much the cash flow is going to be. And then you can start to calculate your returns. So it's a, a little bit or a, quite a bit more complicated than just a single family home because right. you're taking that, those same kind of calculations and multiplying it by however many units. But, um, but that's how you can kind of start calculating, okay, here's my return on investment, here's my IRR, here's what my cash flow is going to look like, my equity multiple, and then decide if that meets your criteria to then go make an offer on that property. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's almost, you're really, it's, it sounds like a similar process to if you're buying a business. You know, I mean, it is a business, but exactly. It's, it, I don't think a lot of people realize that. You know, they, they think, oh, it's just a rental property. It's an apartment. You know, I know how to do this, but you got to think about it. It's a business and there are a lot of expenses. Uh, yeah, I'd like to really say something about that. So one of the things that's unique to multifamily, the reason why I love it today more than I did months ago and, and why I love it more than single family is that there's a very important distinction and you just touched on it is that it's valued and looked at by the bank and everybody else like a business. Right. You're, it's valued based off of how much money it's producing. It's net operating income. So if you go buy a single family house, the value of that single family house is determined based off of comparables, comparable properties. So if you go make, say, Hey, I like this property, Mr. Realtor, uh, how much is this one worth? They're going to go see what other properties sold for recently at, nearby that are just like it and then come up with a number based off of that. That's not how apartments are valued. What they do is they take the net operating income and they divide that by the capitalization rate or cap rate for short. 
which, you know, depending on what market you're in, what city, for example, the cap, the, you know, tr- cap rate, excuse me, the departments are trading at in Indianapolis is going to be way different than what they're trading at in San Diego because it's a risk-adjusted return. So in Indianapolis, the going cap rate might be, capitalization rate might be 6%. So you'll take the net operating income, divide it by 6%. That's what the property's worth. Now, that's the reason why I love real estate or multifamily real estate is because you can force appreciation, right? Because I can go in and increase my net operating income by increasing the income decreasing expenses where I can, increase my bottom line, and now that property is worth way more. Whereas you're limited with single family. You can fix up a single family home all you want, but they're not going to say how valuable it is based off of how much you're renting it for. It's still going to be based off of what other people sold their homes for. So with multifamily, I can force appreciation by you know improving the business pro- uh, process on that property. I can make it worth a hell of a lot more money. That's interesting. And I'm it sounds like you can also probably scale your, excuse me, you can scale your renovations, you know, instead of buying one toilet or one countertop, now you can say, I can, I can leverage that and say, okay, I need to buy 15 toilets. I need to buy, you know, 15 countertops. Exactly. And also the other thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, I wanted to ask, but if you're looking at single family, at some point you're going to, you're going to max out the amount of mortgages you can have on single family, correct? Like you're only allowed to have, is it four or is it six? single family mortgages. So, right. Yeah. So you'll, I think the number six, um, single family mortgages before you're going to now start to have tighter lending standards. Okay. So once you hit a certain number, they're going to say, Hey, now we want to see, like, I, I don't remember it is because I haven't done this for myself. Obviously I went right into a multifamily, but right. eventually they're going to say, okay, now we want to see like six months or a year of reserves on your principal and interest payments, um, for each property before I'm going to let you borrow for another one. And then you'll get to the point of hitting 10. Once you hit 10 properties, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will no longer back those mortgages. So the only way you're going to get more is if you get uh, a portfolio lender. So that's basically the banks just like keeping it on their books. So your lending standards are going to be, you know, you're not going to get the as low of an interest rate and things like that once you start hitting those numbers. That's interesting. And you touched on another good thing though, on the economies of scale, because just like you said, when you're scaling to uh, 10 units, 100 units, whatever the case, it's just like if you go to Costco and you're buying in bulk, right? right? Each item that you're buying at Costco, if you go buy a case, I don't know, of like 10 things of coffee, each of those are cheaper than if you went to Vons or Ralph's or Kroger and bought that same just single coffee because right. you're buying in bulk. Same thing. Same thing with the, just the, the apartment units. If you go buy a house you know, somewhere in, in whatever market one of your listeners might be in, look at how much a house costs. It might cost $200,000 for a single family house that's going to rent for maybe only like $100 or $200 more than a, a nice apartment unit. I got my apartment in Greenwood, Indiana. Those houses are going for $150,000 maybe minimum for not even really nice one. I paid $37,000 per apartment unit for my building. Okay. And my building is getting... Um, you know, $750 for a, a two bedroom unit where you might get like $900 for that single family house. So you're paying less per unit. You're paying less for each window you put into it, all that stuff. The economies right. of scale works in your favor. That's incredible. Yeah. And for anyone that's, that's kind of thinking about this, there, there's a general rule of thumb and please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is mm-hmm. most single family houses, there's a rule of thumb of about a 1% rule. You'll hear that tossed around. Yeah. And that really means that a single family home generally will rent for about 1% of the purchase price. 
And what you're saying in your multifamily or your apartments is that it almost sounds like it's a 2%. Um, exactly. What am I yeah, saying here? It, yeah. A 2% rule. Yeah. If you go back into the early days of bigger pockets, they used to have the 2% rule for single family, but that was right after the real estate crash when you okay. could actually hit that 2% rule. Um, and so now, you know, they're recommending the 1% rule. And like you alluded to, it's basically a simple rule where if you can buy a house and rent it for 1% of the purchase price, then you, then it's probably going to cash flow. Right. And so it's an easy way of ruling out pro- property. So if you buy a property for a hundred thousand dollars, you can rent it for a thousand bucks. That's a, probably going to be a pretty good deal that you'll cash flow on. And exactly. You're able to hit the 2% rule way easier when it comes to multifamily because of those economies of scale. That's That's interesting. So really, I mean, this is interesting because it really sounds like for someone that wants to use real estate as a retirement vehicle, it almost seems as though you should just forego single family. I know people do use single family to retire, but the multifamily just seems so much more appealing. It's it's really incredible. I agree. Uh, I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I wish if somebody is looking into getting in real estate investing that they would seriously consider multifamily. I think what, the reason why a lot of people don't, though, uh, Brian is because there is a bigger, a larger barrier to entry. They're probably sitting at home thinking or in their car thinking, well, okay, Brian, but how am I going to afford a 32 unit apartment complex? You know, I might be able to afford that $150,000 house. And I understand I used to be that same person. There are ways to make it happen. Um, so it, you know, if you're, if you're thinking along those lines, just remember, like you might have to partner with somebody right. to get, you know, a larger unit, or you might have to pull money together from friends or family. There are ways to do it. Don't have that limiting belief, but I agree. Like, don't, don't mess with a single family because there's just a lot of disadvantages to single family that you can't scale. If you really want to build tremendous wealth, multifamily is the way to do it. Yeah, that's interesting. What is the, what was, what would be the smallest for everything we've talked about, you know, what would be the smallest multifamily that you would recommend someone start with? You know, if they're having trouble, maybe finding a partner or, you know, whatever it is, like, where would you suggest they start if they wanted to go down this path? If that's the case, the smallest multifamily. So once you're below four units, so four units and below is still considered a residential loan. Okay. So you're not going to be able to get the benefits of, of increasing the net, net operating income in order to force that value to increase. Like we talked about earlier. Okay. So if you're going to go super small, just because you want to like dip your toe in the water and kind of see the benefits of multifamily, then sure. Get maybe get a four unit, get, get like a four unit uh, property or even a duplex um, and house hack. Okay. Um, I think house hacking is a great way for people to really dip their toe into multifamily and see how great it could be. Because for those that don't know, house hacking is when you get like a fourplex, you live in one unit, rent out the other three, you're living basically for free because those other three units are paying your mortgage. And depending on, you know, how good of a deal you got, you might be making money, right? But that's a good way to start to realize like, wait a minute, if one of these tenants leave, I'm still okay. Whereas if one, if one leaves in my single family, I'm screwed for a month or two until I fill it. But Five units and above, that's where you're going to get, where you're going to have to get a commercial loan. Okay. And that's where you're going to get, start to be able to realize the benefits of forcing appreciation. So I would say try to get, you know, that five units, six units, seven unit, so that you can learn the business and, and force the appreciation and, and see much greater gains. That's the, the route that I would recommend. Okay. That's interesting. Now, as far as like markets go, you know, are there... How would you recommend someone maybe start to look for a market? You know, 
is it, are you, maybe I don't know the right question to ask, but I guess what I'm saying is like for someone that is, that wants to do this and like, okay, I live in Southern California, which is outrageously expensive, Mm -hmm. you know, but I can invest anywhere in the country, but sometimes you get overwhelmed by choice, you know, so how would someone narrow down their focus to say, okay, I can't look at every property in every other state, but maybe I could say I can focus on Indiana or I can focus on Ohio. You know, what are the metrics you would use to, to narrow that down? Great question, uh, because there's probably a lot of people listening that are just like me that are that live in a really expensive market. If you're in a coastal market, Southern California, I don't know, Seattle, something like that, cash flowing real estate is near near impossible. Here in San Diego, I've looked and tried really hard. It's just not going to happen. So I personally invest in the Midwest, which is really far away. And you could we could have a whole hour conversation on, on that because I'm sure a lot of people are like, whoa, how do you manage that and, and this and that. So just when it comes to finding a market where the numbers are going to make sense, I suggest you do a couple of things. First, um, you know, try I like to what I what we did is we started just writing down um, states that have affordable real estate that are uh, landlord-friendly states. And when I say landlord-friendly, I mean like states that don't have a lot of laws in favor of the tenant that make it harder for you to evict. Uh, Because when that's the case, like in California, for example, it's so hard to evict tenants that you get a couple bad tenants and they could cost you a lot of money. Right. So I recommend, if you're going to do like me, focus on states that are are typically landlord-friendly. And then... You know, focus on states. If you, let's say you're you're living in a coastal market and maybe you're even from the Midwest, like pick a state that uh, it, maybe you're from that you might know the market or already have an intimate knowledge of the market. Um, but uh, you really need to focus on markets that are going to have some key fundamentals that are driving the economy in a positive direction. So don't invest in any markets that have a decreasing population. That's like number one right there. So I wouldn't recommend investing in like Detroit or something like that, unless you've got a super unique strategy and you know that market like the back of your hand. So pick cities and you can literally Google, like if you're gonna pick Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm from, you could Google Louisville, Kentucky uh, population trend or, or Louisville, Kentucky, whatever, you know, to find these metrics and say, okay, you want to be in a, in, a, in a market that's got a steadily increasing population, a good job center. So you don't want to invest in a market that is almost entirely dependent on one industry. So, if, for example, we saw what happened to cities that were entirely dependent on the auto industry. If something right. bad happens to the auto industry, a bunch of people lose their jobs. So you want to find places that got a good mix of jobs, um, uh, increasing population, and, and in general, a good outlook for the future. So, you know, that'll automatically cancel out a lot of states, a lot of cities, pretty much all the coastal markets. I would just cancel those unless you know those really well. Um, and you can find properties of cash flow. And for me, it really kind of leaves this belt in the middle of the country of a lot of um, markets where you can cash flow properties. And then the second thing that I recommend people do is pay for a data service like a neighborhood scout. If you've never heard of neighborhood scout, um, it's a paid service. And so for example, I pay a hundred dollars a month and that's going to give me a hundred reports a month. And what that will do is once you start looking at properties and analyzing properties, if you're not really familiar with a neighborhood or a market, you can go type in an address or a neighborhood or even a city. And that's going to give you all kinds of demographic information, crime information, schools. So let's say, you know, you're saying, hey, I want to go invest in Cleveland. I think that that's a good cash flowing market, but I don't know Cleveland. I don't know the neighborhood. So how the hell am I going to know if I'm investing in 
a high crime area with really bad schools. Like I don't know Cleveland that well. That's a good question. When you start getting property sent your way, you type in the address and it'll tell you in neighborhood scout, you know, what the median household income is. There's three things that we look for right off the bat to cancel out a, a property, household income, crime and schools. So we look for like a minimum of $40,000 median household income. Why? Because once you start getting below that, now you're going to have too many people that are dependent on section eight and we don't like section eight tenants. Um, those people are tend going to tend to, you know, skip rent or, or tear up the units more. So that's one of our metrics. So you can look to see, you know, if it's a decent neighborhood, just simply based off of the median household income, you can look at the crime rates. They'll give you statistics like on an index of one to a hundred with 100 being the safest. And then they'll even break it down by crime. You can see, okay, oh, wow. is it property crimes? Like they'll tell you how many crimes in the last year were there. So you can see if it's a high crime area, we avoid the high crime areas. And then you can also look at the schools. That's a really important driver. If you're in a neighborhood with good schools, that's great for real estate. So we check those three things first. Okay. If it doesn't hit all three of those, then we pass. So that's really a great way. And then they've got all kinds of other statistics that you could look at um, with that website, Neighborhood Scout. But you can continue digging deep, deeper and deeper to, to really learn a neighborhood. So I recommend people, you know, from a top-down view, look at population trends, look at job trends, where are the jobs going, try to pick cities based off of that, see if you could if you can find properties that are good cash flowing properties in those markets. And then once you really start looking down to like the neighborhood level and look at properties, punch in those addresses on data websites like Neighborhood Scout and start to look at the data. The data doesn't lie. I wrote an article one time called, I know your neighborhood better than you do. And it was basically talking about how to research a neighborhood when investing in real estate and all these different metrics to look at, because you could sit there and say, well, oh yeah, uh, such and such is a good neighborhood. They've got, you know, a good Starbucks on the corner, the neighborhood neighbors wave as you drive down the street. It seems like a good neighborhood, but for me, that's not good enough. You know, I, I think that if I could tell you what the median household income is, what the crime is, what the job trends are, uh, then, you know, you could find out, okay, 30% of the population in this neighborhood works for a, a hospital or whatever. I know more about that neighborhood than you do if you're just giving me data that doesn't really matter at the right. end of the day. Uh, that's interesting. So, wow, that, that's a lot. That's a lot to unpack, but that's awesome. I mean, that's great information. So, at what point in all of this did you decide to, you started your own company, mm -hmm. right? At what yeah. point, what made you decide to, to go down that road? Cause that's a whole nother ball of wax, you know, but one of the things that was a catalyst for a lot of what we've done was a one book called the best ever apartment syndication book okay. by Joe Fairless. And this is this massive book that kind of details his recommendations on everything you can do to start um, syndicating apartments. And for those who have never heard that word, what my partners and I are now doing is we take money from investors. We, we, uh, uh, pool money from investors to go buy apart larger apartment communities. And people call that apartment syndication. So anyways, um, that book, he details like, hey, look, you need to be putting yourself out there as much as humanly possible to attract capital to invest in your deals. And the way you do that is by making your, uh, a brand that you can then um, build upon from you know having a podcast, writing blog articles, okay. Uh, start a real estate meetup so that you can meet people face to face and, and congregate with these people, go to conferences. And my partners and I basically said, well, if we want to be serious about this, we need to do everything we possibly can to get ourselves out there, 
learn more about as much as possible about this industry and become a thought leader in the industry, a subject matter expert. So we dove into the deep end of the pool. We started a podcast. We started a local real estate meetup where we have 50 people on average every month that show up to it. Wow. Um, we write blog articles on our website. Um, we have a social media presence where we advertise on social media, paid advertisements to bring people to our podcast, bring people to our website to learn about multifamily real estate sure. and provide value to people. Just like we provide value for our real estate, we're trying to teach people how to do what we're doing. And so the idea came to start up our company and then do all of these things with our company just to build our brand, help other people. And the more you help other people with their financial freedom, the more that's going to reciprocate back at you. And so that's the, the basic model that we decided to follow. And so that was the catalyst from us starting all of these different things and starting our company, Pack 3 Capital, and the multifamily takeoff. That's awesome. Now, your meetups, are they um, just in San Diego or do you have those in different areas? Just in San Diego right now. So we have a, our real estate meetup here in San Diego, and it's not even exclusively for multifamily. It's for all kinds of real estate. It's okay. called Beers and Deals. And the idea is just we meet up at a brewery. Okay. It has this big open area, and it's a bunch of people that show up. We advertise it on like Bigger Pockets and meetup.com. Okay. And people come, come out, hang out, have a beer. They put on a name tag and they chat real estate. That's it. And so people make connections. I've actually had uh, two people from my meetup that um, on that first deal that we got, they actually invested $50,000 each into that, into that deal. So, you know, that's for people that want to get started. I would recommend the same thing in general, just putting yourself out there as much as possible. Right. You need to be rubbing elbows with people that have done this before or want to do the same thing you're doing to bounce ideas off of potentially form partnerships. But if, if that's what you want to do, you need to, to surround yourself with people that are wanting to do the same thing. I totally agree. That's awesome. I think uh, I'm going to have to take the drive to San Diego. I think. Are you guys, you do. Um, have those meetups been impacted by COVID? Are you still able to do that? Or Yeah. Unfortunately, since COVID, we haven't had a single meetup. So okay. what we've been doing is kind of individually meeting up with a couple of people here and there for like lunch or something like okay. that, just to keep the connections um, and we send out, you know, a, a newsletter with our podcasts and blogs to all of those people. But unfortunately, especially here in, in California, where the restrictions have been particularly um, solid, uh, we haven't been able to have that meetup. Now, I don't know when we're going to be able to do it again. It, it seems like it's been for forever now. I'm really anxious to do them, though. Yeah, that's disappointing. I mean, for anyone that's not familiar, the, the rules out here in California keep changing and they keep bouncing back and forth. And it, I don't think anyone knows when we're going to open again. So that's really frustrating for anyone that wants to run a business or, you know, have meetups. It's, I don't think anyone has the answer to that, but yeah, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> That's all another podcast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for someone that wants to invest with you guys, you know, who can invest with you? Are there, is there a particular client you're looking for? Is there someone that or a profile that would work best with you guys? Yeah, actually. So for our investments, we file with the SAC in what's called a 506 uh, regular or 506 regulation D 506 C offering, okay. which means only accredited investors are legally allowed to invest with us, which means okay. that you have to have a net worth of over a million dollars, not including your primary residence or uh, make $200,000 each of the past two years with a reasonable expectation that you're going to do that again this year or $300,000 jointly with a spouse or domestic partner. So 
there's a, a money side to that of being able to legally invest with us in our offerings. Um, and then our offerings are a $50,000 minimum investment. Okay. So there is a barrier to entry there. That's not to say that people can't invest in apartment offerings because there are what are called 506B uh, offerings that the SEC allows, which allow unaccredited investors to invest with people. But the caveat to that is that you have to have a pre-existing relationship with the sponsor to invest with them. So, you know, that doesn't mean you have to be like their family member. You could literally like Brian and I could start a relationship where we've been, you know, uh, over the course of some time, I've been talking about real estate together and we can, you know, do an investment like that together. But, um, and there's also a joint venture, which is just where you and a couple people put your money together and you're not raising money from other people to passively invest with you. So uh, the typical person that's going to be investing with us has to be accredited sure. and they also have to be a sophisticated investor, meaning that they have to have a reasonable understanding of what they're investing in. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Yeah, there's so, a whole bunch of like laws and, and um, regulations on that designed to protect the investor because back in like the 1920s, you know, the real estate crash, all kinds of people were creating phony companies and um, basically taking money from low and middle class people to invest in and basically botched investments. And so to try to protect people, they've created that barrier so that because the idea is that uh, an accredited investor is going to have uh, going to be savvy with their finances and understand their, the investment they're investing in and be better equipped to analyze that investment. And so that's the idea, but I've always looked at it negatively because I've always disagreed. I think that that's just a way to make, to exclude this great investment class to only rich people to get richer is basically the way I look at it, but it is what it is. Yeah. I think that's always a balance, you know, there, you don't want to, mm -hmm. you don't want to manipulate the market. So then it comes crashing down at some point. But at the same right. time, you also have to, you got to allow people that are legitimate to get into the market and invest for themselves. So that's, that's always a challenge. That's tough. Yeah. Um, so for someone that's not accredited, where would you, do you have any recommendations on where they could go if they want to get started? Sure. Somebody that's not accredited, I think the best way for you to go, honestly, is a joint venture. Mm-hmm which is, you know, taking on an active role. If you're going to invest in a syndication passively, I think it's a great way to invest if you can, obviously, um, without having to lift a finger other than, you know, looking at the deal and seeing if it makes sense to you. Um, you don't have to do anything as a passive investor in a syndication and you get all of the upside benefits of great returns on your investment. Now, doing a joint venture, you're going to need to do the work yourself. Um, but you can get great returns and learn the business. So that just means, you know, find a couple people to partner with mm -hmm. and go in on a deal. You form an LLC, you go buy a property, a commercial property. I would recommend either doing that or like I alluded to earlier, surrounding yourself with people that are doing this real estate stuff, go to meetups, um, get in contact with people that are doing it. And you'll eventually run into somebody that's doing the 506B offering, which will right. allow up to 35 unaccredited investors. There's a limit, but they, they will, the SEC will allow up to 35 unaccredited investors to invest in those apartment syndications. So I think that somebody that's unaccredited needs to um, make connections. That, I mean, at the end of the day, so much of real estate is about you know, making connections and, and who you know. Right. And I think the more people that you rub elbows with, the greater likelihood you are to have great investment opportunities come your way. No, that's absolutely true. And that's actually true. You know, now that I think about it, I think every guest we've talked to has said the same thing and they have wildly different, you know, career fields. You know, we just recorded a show not too long ago where um, 
one of our guests, she was at a, um, at a shark tank meetup and she left the room, you know, she just left the room cause she gave up and said, um, you know, they're not going to call me or whatever it was. And they called her back in and she ran back in the room. And because she ran oh, wow. back in the room, she ended up getting on the show because they were taking, um, what am I trying to say? They were taking like backup, um, contestants and stuff like that. Yeah. That's and amazing. Because, well, it was, but because she did that, she ended up hooking up with Damon John and, uh, I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk, but it's those little things like you can't ever give up and just, you got to put yourself out there. And it's, it's funny cause it's not real estate. It's, it's all about networking. It's about providing value for other people, you know, no matter what you're trying to do, if you don't want to go down the real estate road, it's, it's those connections. It's, it's making friends with people. It's providing value. It's just being out there. It's amazing. Yeah. How far that'll take you. I, I agree a hundred percent. And there's no excuses. If you want something bad enough, you're going to make it happen and you're going to find a way to meet the right people and learn from them. Um, I, you know, I grew up playing sports and baseball and I remember like, if I was like too lazy to maybe go out and practice my swing on off the tee or something like that, my dad would always tell me, well, then you don't want it bad enough. Yeah. If that's the case, then you don't want to be good, bad enough. If you're rather sit at home and do that. And I apply that same line of thinking to everything I do for my real estate. If, if there's a stock going through my head, well, uh, I don't really want to write blog articles because I stink at writing, which I do. Um, but that attracts more people to my website that provides value for people. So then I thought to myself, well, then you don't want it bad enough. If you're not going to do that, you have the time to do it, go do it. So people listening that, well, I don't really want to go to real estate. Maybe meet up, maybe I'm an introvert, but I am interested in this stuff. No excuses. You're an adult, go out there. Um, and if you want it bad enough, you're going to read the books. You're going to, you're going to do the research. You're going to meet people. And you're going to go through that process to just learn what you can. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for the idea of knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are, and then looking for people that kind of complement what you can provide. You know, I love you, that. Don't, you don't necessarily want to find people that are just like you, but there are certain things that people are better at. So if you can build yourself your own little team, you know, like you said, maybe you're not a good writer, but by putting yourself out there, you're going to come across someone who is a good writer who may not have some of the strengths that you have. And now you just, you two can put that team together and mesh up. And now you get everything you want done. He may do the writing, you may do the, the podcasting, whatever it is, but it's those little things, those little connections. I, I can't stress that enough that every, almost every success I've had has always been from just putting myself out there, being friendly, you know, providing value. It's amazing how far that goes. I, I don't think we can harp on that enough. You know, I, I, I want to piggyback off of that because I agree a hundred percent. I actually just taught how to get a guest on my uh, podcast called Rod Khalif. Uh, he's a huge apartment syndicator. I mean, this guy owns thousands and thousands of units and he harped on the same thing on my podcast. He said, if you're not good at something, if you're not analytical and good with spreadsheets, if you're not good at going and talking to real estate brokers to try and get those deals, you're not good networking and things like that. You, he said that the most successful people he's seen in this business and in real estate and really anything else are people that went and partnered with somebody that complemented their skills. Just yeah. like you said, that's what I did. I'm not good at, or as good at, um, you know, I didn't have experience with the property management side. My partner, Mike already owned a couple small multifamilies. He's got, had some bad property managers, knows what to look for in property managers is really good at managing them. And so he, we brought him on the team, my partner, Rich, he's really great at networking, phenomenal at it. We fly him out to the markets we invest in to go network with these brokers, take them out for dinner um, so they can get to know each other and things like that. And he's wonderful at that. I'm really good. And I like doing the 
underwriting and running the numbers, researching the markets, spending time on my computer, diving into this stuff. So we, we complement each other in that way. And so just like you said, even if people don't want to get in real estate, but they want to get into a different business, if you're not good at something, get a mentor to teach you how to do it or find somebody that can complement those skills. I love that. Yeah. It's, and it's, like I said, it's a recurring theme. And I think everybody, everybody we've talked to has, has had a similar take on it. It's really incredible. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I really like to stress that. Um, well, I think we're getting close to our, our time here. So I want to be respectful of, of your day, but, uh, before we close out, can you uh, tell people where they can find you, uh, social media, website, you know, uh, how people can uh, get in contact with you? Absolutely. So there's a couple ways you can contact me. You can go to my website for the podcast, which is themultifamilytakeoff.com. Um, you can find me uh, on Instagram. I'm really active on there. SDMartel um, or at SDMartel. DMartel is spelled D-I-M-A-R-T-I-L-E. And you can also just email me directly. I don't mind at all. Uh, you can, which is Sean, S-H-A-W-N at the multifamily takeoff.com. You can reach me on any of those. I'd be happy to respond. If you've got questions and want to know more about real estate, I'm happy to help. I want to provide value to all your listeners. Oh, that's great. Thanks for doing that. And for anyone that's listening, we'll, um, we'll link up to all his contact information in our show notes and on our website. So if you missed it or you're driving, we'll be able to, uh, be able to get it later. Um, well, this has been a great episode. I really think we, we kind of just really touch the surface on a lot of things. So I, I think we could probably do another couple of shows on, on certain things and, and get real, real deep into some of it, but absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for your time. It was been great. You're welcome back anytime. And thanks for all you do. Thanks for uh, offering to help out other people. Glad to do uh, it. Thanks for yeah. having me on Brian. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Anytime. And uh, for anyone out there, please check out Sean. He's, he's doing some great stuff. He's, very helpful, very friendly. Um, he's providing good service to people out there. So please, please check him out, take him up on his offer. And, uh, if we ever get out of lockdown in California, please attend one of his meetups. That's, I don't think we can stress how important those are. So better see you there, Brian. Oh, I, I'll be there. <laughs> good, good. Cool. This is Brian signing off on the, uh, nothing owed podcast. Have a good day, everybody. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Nothing owed. Nothing old.